0: Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary.
1: It is uh, it is this contrast, this way in which God enters into. Um, into the pain of the fallen world despite the Bible's claim that he is a, a pow- all-powerful and in many ways uh, perfect being that is the exceptional part of the Christian uh, of what represents Christianity I, I could make the comparison to to Islam in which you have a very sovereign God but he exercises that power um, and the compassion and relational elements of, uh, of a religious faith are n- nowhere near as prominent in Islam as they are in Christianity and Judaism.
2: Oh, no, and, and couldn't be. I mean, some of the things you read in both Old and New Testament would be blasphemous mm-hmm. to our Muslim neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, the share, idea- share the story of the
1: debate that you had with the imam that, that uh, you told me about yesterday.
2: Well, we had this public uh, discussion, that was effectively a debate, mm-hmm. uh, where you know he gave twenty minutes, I gave twenty minutes, five minute cross examination. Do you
1: not call it debate mm. in in Australia? Is it always discussion?
2: Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yes, it, we wanted to call it a discussion just to take the heat out of it. Okay, okay, it didn't work. <laughs> uh, but I mean, it was a very friendly yeah. uh, conversation, and uh, during Frank discussions were had by all it's in diplomatic d- language. <laughs> In our (laughs) cross-examination, we were allowed, I think, three questions. It was quite a few years ago now. Three questions of each other and then a response. So my question to him was, is there anywhere in the Quran, which I'd read cover to cover, or in the hadiths, which I'd read quite a portion, um, where Allah is said to love those who are opposed to him? And Dia Muhammad, uh, this um, Muslim advocate in Australia, uh, said, of course not. Are you saying there's one in the Bible? And, of course, it gave me a great opportunity to talk about, well, actually, the heart of the message is that while we were still sinners, Mm -hmm. enemies of God, Christ came into the world to die for us. That's pretty much what we're on about, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And it was just such a clear... Uh, night for people to see, uh, whatever the value of the arguments, these are two very different conceptions of God. Mm-hmm. The uh, Psalm 22, I often think of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you, I mean, we, we hear that mm-hmm. and we think of Jesus saying it, but if you just forget for a moment mm-hmm. the later context, the psalmist felt you could say that to God mm-hmm. and he wouldn't be upset with you. Mm-hmm. What does that say? Mm-hmm. Now, our Muslim neighbors will not, use that sort of language
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, to the Almighty. Mm-hmm. I cry out to you by day, but you do not listen. Mm-hmm. Huh, what's that about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you know, I mean, the Lament Psalms. Yeah, whole category. Huh, yeah. It's something like a quarter of the Book of Psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that tradition um, speaks of a God who is so sympathetic mm-hmm. with the plight of those who cry out. That you find most especially, obviously, in Jesus, who experienced injury and injustice and a final breath. And that God has entered into the ugliness. Um, And if we can convey this through uh, the content, but also the mode of our speaking, that we believe in that kind of God, I just think it's really powerful against the backdrop of a culture that thinks we're about the misuse of power. mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. The contrast
1: is what draws people in. It, it, it raises an issue that I think is important to reflect on, and that is I, I, I often get asked, you know, when you're engaged in these kinds of conversations, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to win a debate or win a discussion? And part of me says, yeah, I'd really like to win that debate and win that discussion. But my f- initial goal is actually something more fundamental and more basic, and that is to get the person who I'm talking with to pause, to hmm. just reflect on might there be another way to think about what we're talking about with the hope that what I'm putting out on the table is something that they, will, that they can recognize the potential merit of and then open up to consider uh, what is being said because it's different than what they're used to hearing. Um, and so it's a persuasion, but it's not a persuasion that kind of has a, a hammer over your head. Believe this or else. But it's a persuasion that says, "What I think I'm laying out on the table for you is actually a very helpful way to think about how humans should interact and live with one mm. another." Um, it, it really does. It, it I like to say. Um, I, I like to say, you know, it's not just true because it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible because it's true. And so when you when you flesh out what that truthfulness is, the goal is to explain truth or beauty, which is – I'm going to come back to this because I think there's an important thing wrapped up in that conversation um, – uh, that there that there's a certain truthfulness, there's a certain effectiveness of living that's being represented that you hope the other person, particularly if they've never had any real exposure to the church or whatever exposure to the church they've had is what they've picked up in the static of the culture. Um, uh, a kind of cultural Christianity that gives them pause, and they'll start to think. I actually think that's that's the key first step in doing what it is
2: we're trying to do. I couldn't agree more. I would I would only add that when you're doing it in a in the public square, when you're you know in the media, mm-hmm. and there are thousands of people watching, you you also have to think about uh, the many people watching absolutely you and what is effective for them. Yes. So I often feel. If I lose well in the debate or discussion with a journalist or whatever, right. but I've done it so well that I know the audience are thinking, actually that that Christian guy was reasonable and mm. level-headed and and pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, that commends the gospel. I mean, I don't go around trying to lose. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but I'm not so concerned about <laughs> right. losing. Um, my personality is, my instinct is to right, win. Right, right, right. Uh, but, I think the Gospel has slowly beaten Dixon into the expectation that losing well is sometimes a beautiful representation of the Gospel for those looking looking on and so I often find this in social media you know so i 've got quite a number of Facebook and Twitter followers, and sometimes atheists come and pursue me mm-hmm. and uh you know sometimes they are so angry at me. And occasionally I, uh, I say things that, you know, I probably shouldn't have, you know, a little bit smug or mm-hmm. whatever. But generally I am thinking, how are the many people watching this conversation responding? And often uh, <laughs> I'm quite happy when the atheist gets rabid because uh, it, it's conveying something about their atheism. I think Richard Dawkins is actually doing us a favor in the long term. Because he is so extreme mm-hmm. so uncompromising, I think the average thoughtful uh doubter out there thinks yeah that's that's not an approach I like. Mm-hmm. I thought the Christian did a little bit better there mm-hmm. that is winning mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, i it's it's funny that you say this because i uh I just did a media panel um, for an event that was hosted in New York City um by Biologos, and they asked me on a panel with another Christian and two journalists, and that we were talking about how to engage the media. And I got asked, you know, what's, what's your primary goal when you go on the air? And, and I said, my primary goal is that I'm not so concerned with the opponent that the that the media often pitches me against you know as the contrast I am much more interested in how the audience is responding to what's happening than in my trying to defeat the person on the other side of the on the other side of the microphone who's taking a different position my goal is to engage but to engage in such a way that hopefully I am commending what it is that I represent uh, as opposed to winning a debate. And so the first rule I always have is I'm engaged in a conversation versus a debate. I'm not trying to win anything all that i'm trying to do is to demonstrate what i hope is the reasonableness of what i believe in a way that will draw people in to consider what it is that's being said that's very much what you're saying and um, it, it, I, and it was interesting cuz a lot of people in the audience after this presentation came up to me and said um, you know i've done a few things on the media and i've never th- i've never thought of it that way you know their their goal was was you know i'm here to to represent the position and my goal is to win that that conversation and win that debate. And again, it isn't that you're not it's not that you're trying to lose, but you but your goal is to understand that I'm probably not going to convince the guy on the other on, on the other side of the microphone, but I'm interested in the person who's trying to decide which which microphone am I going to believe. Hmm. Uh, and and hopefully draw them in my direction as opposed to the direction of the person who I may be – And if we think of
2: Christianity as not only true, Mm -hmm. but good, Mm -hmm. then you've got to allow that sometimes you won't be able to convince an audience that it's true, Mm -hmm. but you might be able to convince them through tone and Mm -hmm. behavior that it's good. Mm -hmm. And if they have a sense that it's good Mm -hmm. and beautiful and Mm -hmm. drawing, Mm -hmm. then – you know, in some ways, that's as good as convincing them in their head that there's a very good argument that Jesus, you know, goes again. And
1: in fact, it's probably the first step. It's a first step in moving them towards a potential recognition that maybe the way I've thought about this, there's another way to think about it. And
2: of course, that was C.S. Lewis's uh, whole approach in the end. Mm-hmm. He came very much to believe that if he can convey the beauty of Christianity uh, to people, it opens them up to the truth. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he didn't draw a, you know, a, a real dichotomy between those two things, mm-hmm. but he, he was so aware that many of our beliefs about what's true are motivated mm-hmm. by something. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to convey the, the beauty of ideas to, to allow people to open up to the possibility that they're also true. Mm-hmm. To want it to be true mm-hmm. is a step along uh, the path to knowing it's true. It's an interesting concept because,
1: in fact – and you even see this in the way marketing is done, at least here in the United States um, – there is an, a, a pitch – I'm going to use advertising terminology – there's a pitch to the emotions. As much as there is a pitch of the product, I, it, I, we just went through our Super Bowl, uh, which is the equivalent of the Aussie Rules final, and uh, um, you've it, got much
2: better ads. though.
1: <laughs> well, it, it really is a cultural experience, and I happen to watch it with someone who was from Germany, who lived in Germany. So I'm I'm explaining these commercials to this European who has some, he's lived here for several years and has some understanding of culture, but not not a, uh, obviously hasn't been immersed in the details of our culture and it was a imme- you know the constant question was what does that have to do with the product hmm. okay and and this question must have come up a half dozen or more times during the game and and uh and i said well i said really it's it's not uh it it's not just the fact of the product. They're trying to create a feeling around the product. I mean there's a very famous, they're a very famous set of commercials, I don't know how famous they are, but they're widely distributed. I'm loving it. That's what McDonald's is pitching mm. right now. You know, who loves a hamburger? I mean, well, you might you might like certain hamburgers, but who loves a McDonald's hamburger? McDonald's hamburger, their diamond dozen. But they're trying to create a feeling around coming to the hamburger. Or another one, uh Budweiser, a beer. Their their key their key image is the Clydesdale horse, and this German was looking at me, going, "What does a horse have to do with it?" You know. And so I had to explain the history of how originally beer was delivered, and and that they've used this. You horse. explained beer to a German. <laughs> I explained a beer commercial to a German. It's not the same thing. Uh, and uh, it's a good observation, though. Um, and and the point was, if you understood the history of what led originally to how the beer got to people. You understand why they used a horse to brand – and people – they feel something about these beautiful horses, these Clydesdales that draw – and the the point that I think we're making with this is that there is an opening up of the human soul through the depiction of. of beauty and value and and positive emotion, if I can say it that way, that so, that, that sometimes leads you into places that you wouldn't go normally, rationally, as your first stop.
2: Mm. Aristotle distinguished between two kinds of beauty in persuasion. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know his logos, you know, the mm-hmm. intellectual argument, which he was a big fan of but he, he also distinguished between pathos and ethos mm-hmm. and and pathos and they both refer to that emotional psychological dimension mm-hmm. of persuasion mm-hmm. but pathos was the more what the commercials are doing mm-hmm. making you feel warm fuzzies toward the thing mm-hmm. and aristotle said yeah look we've got to be honest with ourselves we are, we are all psychological beings and mm-hmm. We are drawn to arguments we just find more pleasurable, and that's why humor should be used in speeches. And he lays all this out in mm-hmm. his book on rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But then he has this section on ethos, and he says this is the most important part of persuasion. Mm. So when Aristotle says, this is, this is it, yeah. ready? <laughs> you all listen. <laughs> and he says, and he boils it down to this. We believe those with, I'll, I'll call it uh, a humani- humanitarian spirit. He uses the word um, epiakea. which which you find in Paul's letters translated as gentleness, but it really means that humanitarian regard, that Mm -hmm. moderate, fair, just character. We trust that person, the Mm fair-minded, the good-hearted person, Mm -hmm. um, more than anyone else on all topics. Mm -hmm. Hmm. He said the key to persuasion is um, if you are someone who is trustworthy in the eyes of the persuaded, mm-hmm. that moves belief. Hmm. So he said, this is a beauty that is bound up with goodness. It isn't just beauty in the sense of emotional appeal. Mm-hmm. This is goodness. And he said, this ethos is the is the primary part of persuasion because we believe the fair-minded, those we perceive to be credible and fair-minded, far more easily than we do anyone else. Hmm. Um, and so... If we can uh, convey the goodness of Christianity to people, that it's credible, morally credible, loving, um, generous, compassionate, humble, all these things that just flow out of the gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, then I think what happens is people long for that goodness, even if they're not 100% convinced it's based on anything rational it's mm-hmm. got the logos mm-hmm. who knows if it's got the logos mm-hmm. but it's beautiful mm-hmm. that's the that's the beauty the goodness that i think um, what what you call apologetics what i call public christianity mm-hmm. uh, ought to be trying to convey yeah. in addition to truth
0: god is a genius storyteller and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture
1: Now there's another discussion that we had about Albert Camus that I think fits in nicely here as well. a um, mm. uh, Well-known French atheist who, who in the midst of his battles with Christianity, also interestingly had almost an appreciation for what its message was. And most people probably aren't even aware of this. So, uh, and it, I think it fits in here. What, 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 what? It, what it, you know, here's the critic
2: talking about oh, yeah. Christianity. Well, he was um, the the great. Atheist who who said we live in an abyss of of no hope. We we scream out to the universe and it's utterly silent. That's, mm-hmm. That was his philosophy, mm-hmm. and a real lament psalm. <laughs> he, he was he was one hundred percent lament. <laughs> yeah. in, in the sense that um, you know Nietzsche, for all of his um, atheism, had a rather chipper view of where we'll all go when we've got rid of christianity Mm -hmm. because because the the higher man is on the way Mm -hmm. once we get rid of that christianity stuff and the way it holds everyone back Mm -hmm. what will emerge natural selection will take over the higher man will emerge and brilliant well Camus Mm -hmm. couldn't buy that Mm -hmm. after two world wars Mm -hmm. so camus was um really interesting character but he wrote an essay that wasn't published till after his death in 1960. And in this essay, he basically says, I mean, I don't have the quote off the top of my uh, head, but he he basically says, the cross of Jesus Christ is the answer uh, to the cry of the soul in this despairing universe, hmm. if it were true. Hmm. he's And he says Golgotha changed the West mm-hmm. forever hmm. because what it did is it, Um, transformed the normal divine prerogatives, he said, so that God himself entered into the pain. Now, he died in January 1960. Uh, No one knows how far he took it, but there was more than a rumor that he'd been meeting with a Parisian pastor to read the Gospels. Mm. The pastor was sworn to secrecy, uh, but it came out um, a decade or more later that he'd been reading the Gospels for his own trying to understand the figure of Jesus. So here is here is a man who was intellectually an atheist mm-hmm. but his heart seemed to be drawn to the answer that the cross gives. The
1: the the beauty of the cross, not just the truthfulness of it, but the beauty of it. I want, I want to spend the remainder of our time on this beauty and truth thing because I think it's something that you you talk about that actually is important and it's one of these uh, Tr- translatable categories that i think you know truth <laughs> truth has fallen on hard times in a postmodern world it's um uh, people are trying to blow it to smithereens in one way or another and basically say you know there's your truth and my truth and you know as long as it works for you and all those kinds of things but let's not think about you know some view from above kind of truth that doesn't exist anymore but there is something that that uh, i th- i don't think anyone can deny, and that is that there are places of beauty in the world. There are places where the orderliness of the world screams out and says, and and draws wonder. Um, and there's a sense in which I think a, a key in explaining what Christianity is is to show not only that it's true, but that in one sense it's beautiful. Um. Develop that because I think this is an idea that you, you talk about that I really, uh, re- really resonates for me.
2: Well, yes, um, we have intuitions, um, as you say, that that there's there's something beautiful and good and wonder, mm-hmm. and, and even the atheists have spotted that their worldview is. Uh, giving the impression that it was just a cold, rational worldview without any mm-hmm. wonder, and so just very recently they've all started talking about the wonder mm-hmm. of that science gives you, mm-hmm. uh, because they know that human beings are wonder seekers mm-hmm. <laughs> in the sense that we we long for the numinous, for the for the beautiful, for the good. So they're they're going there, but the problem that they're going to have is, what's it based on?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Is it really just an instinct? Am I just a mammal whose chemicals act in a certain way when I see a sunset? Mm-hmm. Because in the end, that's what they have to say. Mm-hmm. They, yes, that's right. Oh, but it's wonder. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's not wonder. It's no more wonder than, you know, if I fall over and hurt myself, that is also a chemical reaction mm-hmm. of the same status. Mm-hmm. Atheists have a real problem with beauty. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, um, A.N. Wilson uh, who was an atheist, a British intellectual atheist, wrote you know terrible book on c s Lewis, mm-hmm. terrible book on Jesus, mm-hmm. highly skeptical, recently became a Christian hmm. and in his published account in uh, the New Statesman, I believe, it was this problem of beauty hmm. that convinced him Christianity must be true because he was listening he said it was music, he was listening to the order in music. Hmm. And he wondered, does he really believe the incredible experience he has when he listens to a great Mozart piece or whatever is simply a chemical reaction? Because he has to believe that if he believes Mm -hmm. that's not grounded in anything other than chemicals. Mm -hmm. And he had this kind of epiphany. I mean, it wasn't, his conversion wasn't entirely because of this, but he had this sense that I can't ground my wonder unless... This is an echo of an inherent imposed goodness. A, desi- a real desire. that has come from the purposeful actions of an artist. Mm-hmm. Only only if the creation has, is good because it's come from someone who is good. Mm-hmm. Can our sense of wonder be more than an instinct, mm-hmm. but actually be true? And beautiful at the same time.
1: Yeah, I find that the the, uh, the way I like to think about this is the the ex, the exceptional fact of the earth, if I can say it that way. And think about what we know now versus when the Bible was written. We now know that the universe is far more vast and far more complex, and far more uh, fascinating and space filled, if I can say it that way, than we ever imagined, mm. and yet. Here's this one speck. I mean, speck is generous. <laughs> one speck in the universe where the atmosphere works, where there's water and and air and and um, and plant life that that generates all kinds of, that sustains lot. I mean, and you just look at it and you go, the, the exception that is, you know, and you know, maybe one day we'll find that there's life somewhere. I mean, the universe is vast, but. Certainly, in the in our near surroundings, we're a very, very exceptional piece, which raises the question of why life.
2: Yeah, um, sometimes skeptics raise this as a reason not to believe in God, because mm-hmm. look, the Earth, all this space, it's wasted, mm-hmm. wasted time, wasted space. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you may have been to the museum, uh, the National Museum in Cairo, mm-hmm. the National Museum, five stories, beautiful, the Tutankhamun room. You walk in; it's a vast room mm-hmm. with a tiny little box, mm-hmm. and you realise that the vastness is actually meant to draw your eye to the beautiful box with Tutankhamun and all his hmm. uh, all the gold mm-hmm. hoard that they got with him. They don't want it to be a cluttered room; mm-hmm. they make that room the special. Here room. is the one thing. Yeah, yeah, the space is actually there to bring yeah. attention. Yeah, and to me, the Earth in a vast space, is doing a pretty good job Mm -hmm. of putting it on display. And isn't it fascinating that that the opening theme of the Bible is the goodness and orderliness of creation? Mm -hmm. That sevenfold, it was good. Mm -hmm. It was good. Mm -hmm. And the seventh, it was very good. Mm -hmm. This is clearly trying to say, against a modern culture that would devalue creation, against ancient cultures that might, no... This intuition you have about the goodness and beauty of creation is not an instinct. It's based on the on the true goodness that is there because of the good God.
1: Yeah. I mean I, I think the core starting point for talking about the gospel is the idea that we are creatures who've been created by a creator. There is a there is a purpose and a design and a function in life. That it's one hand is mysterious, but is there to be discovered, and that God has revealed Himself, and the, and really the gospel is about reconnecting us to this. To this story of creation and the orderliness with which the world was originally created, and use your word the beauty with which the world was created. We got done with the creation. We said it was very good. We might as well have said this is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the wife of of uh, of Adam Eve is said to be wow. <laughs> so it's about beauty, mm-hmm. about design, and so uh, that's where the gospel starts and getting people reconnected. I love the Michelangelo. Michelangelo portrait of the creation at the top of the Sistine Chapel. I love that picture of the finger of God touching the finger of humanity and there's a, there's a I like to think of it as an electric connection. You know, there's a relational connection that was that Michelangelo is portraying as designed and intended by the creator. And and really the gospel is about putting those two hands back in touch with one another.
2: Well, in Revelation 21:22, mm-hmm. recall the garden mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. Turn up the volume on it, mm-hmm. and how much of those last two chapters of the Bible are trying to convince you this is beautiful? Mm-hmm. All that stuff about what the streets are made of mm-hmm. and and the rivers and all the—it's f- beauty recovered. It's lush. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's and, and and so there's a power in it that I think is important. And, and so I, I think you know one of the things that fascinates me about about what you all are doing at CPX is that there is this whole. I would say both relational and emotional. This very human dimension of engagement that you all are very much uh, have your hands around and are trying to display and are conscious about thinking about. Whereas most, and I'm going to use the word apologetics, um, uh, most apologetics is operating at such a strictly rational level um, that it that it it misses that connectedness of what it is that we're actually trying to do if we're not careful.
2: Yeah, it can happen, and, you know, I'd want to offer the caveat that you know, yeah. um, but maybe the the audience doesn't know that we, we still you know we stand up for truth absolutely all the time, all right? the time yep. and, and we get people gigs on the topic of hell on national radio right <laughs> yeah. so we,
1: we don't avoid any, <laughs>
2: exactly right any of the messiness. yeah let's call that American he can be our hell guy okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and we do gay marriage <laughs> yeah. interviews and we do all the hard stuff as well. But you're right. It's in this context Mm -hmm. of trying to convey the truth and the beauty of Christianity.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that uh, you know, again, the danger here is that the defense of the faith can sometimes be seen as strictly an intellectual exercise. But it's actually a much more profound thing that we're after, in 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 terms of engagement. And and the most important thing that we're after is trying to reflect, uh, if you will. the character and engagement of God, while engaging a world, and if we, and if we model what Jesus modeled, then I think it's it, it's an important step in the right direction, and that that means that means taking the risk. That means you know I I, I like to say I, I like to ask the question this way: Consider from the world standards, was Jesus's life a success? you know the very fact that he went to the cross the very fact that he ended up on a cross you would go well if you were doing church growth mm-hmm. <laughs> statistics that probably isn't the way your public relations firm would design what it is that was supposed to happen to Jesus and yet out of that defeat you could think of it that way in fact the scripture calls it a curse out of that curse comes the very potential for reversal that actually pulls the world back together it's mm. it's a it's, it's a profoundly counterintuitive way of thinking about how to fix things, and in that, in that difference with the way the world might go about fixing things is the profundity of what I think um, Christianity is, and is ultimately is all about.
2: It is, and of course, when Peter says that you're to give an apologia, mm-hmm. he says, but do this with proutes kaifobos, mm-hmm. gentleness. And respect, mm-hmm. because you you can't even defend this Lord mm-hmm. that you set apart in your heart, always being prepared to give an answer. You can't defend that Lord without gentleness and respect. And Colossians
1: four and five goes to the same place. You know it says, you know, let your speech with insiders uh, outsiders always be gracious. Mm. A- and so there's this uh, there's the, this interesting. Um, combination of moral challenge, conviction, as you have put it, and and what I call invitation. Uh, Moral challenge and invitation that's part of the way the Christian is supposed to function. You talked about it being conviction and compassion together. It's another way of thinking about it. And and you've got to have both. It can't be one or the other, or, or else it will absolutely fail. Well, thank you, John, for being a part of our conversation about uh, thinking about how to engage in the context of a cultural minority. Actually, what we've looked at is is thinking about engagement from a from a biblical background and a biblical rootage. And I appreciate you helping us to do that. We thank you for being a part of the table where we discuss issues of God and culture, and we hope to see you again soon.
0: Thanks for listening to the Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.
1: This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.